Good afternoon, Dr. Dan Guerra here, Authentic Biochemistry Studios. Today is the 22nd of March, 2022. We are still talking about diabetes, and I want to dig deeply into dyslipidemia. And to do that, I'm going to have to go through several lipid metabolic pathways. Now, we have covered these multiple times before, both in video lecture and, of course, in audio. So I decided I was going to go ahead and do an audio. And if it looks like um, ultimately I have to incorporate some of this into the last video lecture for diabetes, I will. But this is now just straightforward lipid metabolism. So in an obesogenic state, which can trigger metabolic syndrome and type 2 diabetes, you're going to have a real large increase in free fatty acid turnover in white adipose tissue. So the adipose tissue and dietary saturated fatty acid levels will significantly correlate with fat cell size and even in the number of adipocytes. The inhibition of adipose triglycerol lipase will also lead to an accumulation of TAG, whereas the inhibition of hormone-sensitive lipase will also lead to the accumulation of a lipid, but not TAG, but DAG, diacylglycerol. And that's going to be very important here because protein kinases C and D are allosterically regulated by diacylglycerol, generated in the different cellular compartments, which can have tremendous physiological consequence. Now, usually this occurs in the membrane, particularly the plasma membrane. Now, DAG, diacylglycerol, accumulates in multiple organs of obese people, and that leads to the disruption of metabolic homeostasis and the development of type 2 diabetes, as well as many of the other associated diseases, for example, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and steatohepatitis. Um, and in the central nervous system, we have already encountered how dementia can be enhanced. So there have been many studies that have shown that there's an aberrant activation because of the increase in DAG of protein kinases C and D. And that contributes directly to the entire score of metabolic diseases, which can increase high morbidity and mortality in the obese uh, population. So the DAG-inducing protein kinase C and D isoforms essentially play a very critical role in the regulation of metabolic homeostasis in the non-pathogenic state. And so it's, it's suggested that the protein kinases themselves may be good pharmaceutical, that is, molecular targets, okay? So what are the sources of diacylglycerol, you might ask? Well, remember the DAG is an intermediate during de novo biosynthesis of triacylglycerol, the Kennedy pathway, and in phospholipid biosynthesis. This includes phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylethanolamine, phosphatidylnosterol, etc. Also, you get DAG during the catabolism of triacylglycerol stored either as cytoplasmic or as endoplasmic reticulum-associated lipid droplets. Furthermore, phospholipid in the plasma membrane and Golgi complex can also generate diacylglycerol, right? And remember why we're talking about this, because diacylglycerol will activate and also essentially recruit membrane-associated protein kinases C and D. 
So again, you have, first thing that can occur is sphingomyelin synthase can take phosphatidylcholine and convert it to diisoglycerol and sphingomyelin. It's a very common pathway. Likewise, induction of the phosphatidylinositol bisphosphate lipase, that's phospholipase C in this particular uh, plasma membrane um, context, will also generate DAG, as well as the inositol phosphate, which acts as its own signaling molecule, which we'll cover later. Once you make diisoglycerol in the membrane, a couple of things can happen. First of all, you can add phosphate to it and make phosphatic acid, which is also a regulator of metabolism, as well as a um, card-carrying membrane phospholipid, acidic, of course. And then also DAG can be converted to monoacylglycerol via DAG lipase. Okay. Now, when DAG does uh, activate protein kinases C and D, they become phosphorylated. And when they are phosphorylated, um, they then will trigger downstream processing, including control over transcription, which we'll get to later. Now, that's all happened to plasma membrane, but also at the Golgi. Golgi stored triacylglycerol lipase will generate DAG. DAG can also generate phosphatidic acid, just like in the plasma membrane. But there's an enzyme that's very potent in the Golgi called phosphohydrolase which will reform DAG. DAG can also be used directly during retailering of phospholipid synthesis. And as we just said, you can make DAG from sphingomyelin synthase by converting phosphatidylcholine to DAG and to sphingomyelin because you're transferring that phosphorylcholine uh, group. So this is going on in the Golgi. Finally, in the lipid droplet, this is the third source of DAG. As I said, um, you can get... Uh, tag lipase to make diisoglycerol, but diisoglycerol can also be reconverted to tag depending on regulation. And there is a hormone-sensitive lipase and a diisoglycerol lipase, both of which will form monoacylglycerol. All this is happening in the lipid droplet. So now I'm telling you, you got the endoplasmic reticulum, you've got the Golgi apparatus, lipid droplets, as well as the cell membrane, all contributing to protein kinases C and D activation. This is all going to be corrupted during um, the process of moving from steatohepatitis uh, to um, frank type 2 diabetes in the liver, and also from the adipose tissue to the skeletal muscle, that insulin-resistant-associated uh, type 2 diabetes will further exacerbate the, the synthesis of diisoglycerol, turning on those two kinases. So there's a G-protein couple receptor, not G-protein couple receptor one, molecular switch gene two. And what happens when you turn that on, it increases lipid content in the adipocytes. And it promotes adipocyte hypertrophy through the restriction of TAG turnover. Now, when you have excess TAG in the adipose, remember the adipose is an organ system which has its own conductance of hormonal influence because of adipokines, right? Like leptin and adiponectin. Excess TAG, sterol and sterol esters, of course, become surrounded by a phospholipid monolayer that's going to form lipid droplets. 
This can occur in the adipose, but it can also occur in the liver, it can occur in the skeletal muscle, uh, and it can occur in the central nervous system. So following the release of lipid droplets that occurs from the endoplasmic reticulum, the mobilization of those droplets becomes cytoplasmic, and those droplets can actually increase in volume either by local tricyclosterol synthesis or by fusion. It's called homotypic fusion. The number and size of lipid droplet distribution, of course, will be correlated with the severity of obesity. Obesity-associated adipocyte death also occurs. And unfortunately, when this happens, you get a necrosis-like programmed cell death. That's because of the involvement of the nod-like receptor family, pyrin domain-containing three inflammasome-dependent caspase one, which activates in hypertrophic adipocytes, which induces adipocytic death via pyrotosis. This is a highly inflammatory programmed cell death. So to go a little deeper, adipocyte death may be a prerequisite for the transition from the hypertrophic to the hyperplastic obesity. Major transcription factors involved here are the CCAAT enhancer binding proteins, beta and delta, because they play a very critical role in the induction of proxyproliferator activated receptor gamma, as well as the CCAAT or CAT enhancer binding proteins alpha and sterile regulatory element binding protein one, which we've covered in the past. All of this involves transcriptional retailering that will involve adipogenesis, further increasing the obesogenic state. Now, the concept of adipose tissue remodeling response to adipocyte death or contrarily adipogenesis and the complexity of lipid droplet interactions and other cellular organelles is another whole chapter in this story, which we can cover later. But we have to also think about lipid droplet growth, as I've been saying, and the functional association of the adipocyte-specific lipid droplet uh, associated protein and then this whole buildup of fatty acid, free fatty acid, which then becomes lipotoxic. So going back to DAG, DAG consists of, obviously this is a lipid, so it's really easy to cover this, consists of two fatty acids covalently bound to glycerol. Those are ester bonds. And so there are three different isomeric forms of DAG. There's SN12, there's SN23, and there's RAC13DAG. Okay, now different enzymes will discriminate between all of those diacylglycerol isomers, of course. And those proteins will interact with DAG depending on their function, and they're going to be localized and therefore associate in different subcellular compartments. DAG stereoregioisomers, like I just mentioned, are localized in distinct uh, portions of the cell. And of course, each of them are going to play a unique role in cell signaling, presumably through the activation of DAG kinases, right? These protein kinases. So DAG, as I said, can also be generated from tyrosoglycerol directly. That's just the first step in lipolysis. And then basically that's just tag hydrolyzed to a fatty acid, which becomes a fatty acyl-CoA. <clears throat> and that can be done by DAG and TAG uh, lipases. 
The tag stored in cytoplasmic and ER-associated lipid droplets, of course, is accessible to different kinds of lipases. Again, metabolic zonation at play. So adipose triacylglycerol lipase, that's the ATGL enzyme, is actually the primary one responsible for hydrolysis of TAG localized in the cytoplasm. And it generates that unique isomeric form of DAG called 1,3-DAG. And it's the only known lipase that can hydrolyze TAG at the two position. Now, that's got a long history that I will go through sometimes. It's very interesting. But we won't now. In the presence of the activator, comparative gene identification 58 ATGL will also hydrolyze TAG, that's another, that's another protein, to 2,3-diacyclycerol, yet another isoform, right? Which I mentioned at the beginning. Now, what about all this? There's another enzyme, um, and when it produces this 2,3-DAG, you can also get a retailoring of that to 1,3, but... I will add one more ripple to this. I know it's getting a bit complicated. You can also get cytoplasmic triacylglycerol um, to produce 2,3-DAG via hormone-sensitive lipase. Okay? So, and that's a glucagon-associated. So DAG generated on cytoplasmic lipid droplets is a substrate for hormone-sensitive lipase and for diacylglycerol lipase beta, which will hydrolyze to a fatty acid and then monoacylglycerol which of course can be retailored back to DAG during Kennedy pathway activities. So the homosensitive specificity hydrolyzes a RAC 1,3-DAG and an SN2,3-DAG. And it shows a preference for those fatty acids being of the very long chain polyunsaturated uh, structural and positional isomorphic uh, um, structures. So cytoplasmic DAG can also be re-esterified to TAG, as I just mentioned, by diacyclosoacyl transferase. That's the DGAT enzyme. So you see there's a lot of um, triacyclosoacyl, diacyclosoacyl, monoacyclosoacyl, phospholipid um, conversion going on intracellularly. And you might think, well, why is all this occurring? Well, it's, it's being induced by two phenomena. One is by the fusion of membranes bringing enzymes into the court where this diacylglycerol or triacylglycerol is located. So once you put the enzyme where the substrate is, you get activity. And that fusion itself is caused by lipid raft mobilization in the form of things like ceramide cholesterol, lipid membrane rafts. And this can be triggered by stress. Uh, and also can be triggered by dietary insufficiency or insulin resistance, okay? We've, we've covered these things in the past, I, I'm sure. So you have this ER Golgi DAG, and it, it, again, it's generated by, from TAG hydrolysis, but you also get it from de novo biosynthesis from monoacyclycerol or even from phosphatetic acid phosphatase, Okay. Main isomeric form present in the ER and the Golgi is a 1,2-DAG, and it can be metabolized by DGATs 1 and 2 to TAG. 
diacyglycerol kinase to PA or enzymes involved in other kinds of phospholipid metabolism, such as phosphatidylcholine biosynthesis and phosphatidylethanolamine biosynthesis. At the plasma membrane, 1,2-DAG is generated during sphingomyelin synthesis, as we've mentioned many times before. And you also have a phosphatidylinositol-specific phospholipase C, which hydrolyzes phosphatidylinositol-4,5-bisphosphate, PIP2 it's called, and it generates a 1,2-DAG, right? And that will specifically activate protein kinase C, which will then subsequently phosphorylate and activate, yeah, protein kinase D. All right. So now we're getting deep into the fabric of what happens during obesogenesis. So when you have an obesogenic state and you produce a lot of diacylglycerol, one of the ways that that occurs is from insulin uh, a lack of insulin sensitivity. Now, a lack of insulin sensitivity will also be induced by DAG by activation of protein kinase C beta, protein kinase C theta, and protein kinase C epsilon. Also, protein kinase C epsilon will block ketogenesis. Now, this is all occurring in the hepatocyte. So if you don't have gluconeogenesis, then what's going to occur is you're going to be blocking TCA cycle because you're not going to be using reducing equivalents to make ATP. So what that means is you're going to get back into higher levels of lipid biosynthesis, even in the presence of high circulating fatty acid, high circulating triacylglycerol. Now, diacylglycerol turning on protein kinase C-beta will actually induce cholesterol metabolism. And as I just said, protein kinase, I didn't tell you how, but lipogenesis is triggered by protein kinase C-beta-2, which is, of course, turned on by DAG, okay? Now, that's all going on in the liver. Now, the skeletal muscle, you have a protein kinase D isoform 3, and that will enhance glucose uptake. So that will alleviate some of the diabetic status. At the same time, though, DAG will block via protein kinases D, et cetera, insulin sensitivity and myoblast differentiation via the activation of protein kinase C theta. You'll also get inflammation by the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines in the skeletal muscle, and this is induced by protein kinase C theta. Okay. Now, and the adipose tissue, we'll continue on here. You're going to get protein kinase C, protein kinase C activity, which is going to, again, block insulin sensitivity, which means you're going to get insulin resistance because of DAG, because of this whole firing of protein kinase C, protein kinase D. Okay, This can be occurring in these cellular beds, directly in all these different organ systems I'm describing to you. So we've covered liver, skeletal muscle, now adipose. You're going to also get protein kinase D activity, which will block thermogenesis. That's going to also increase the obesogenic state. Finally, in the pancreas, protein kinase C epsilon, alpha, and D1 will induce insulin secretion, so you get hyperinsulinemia. Protein kinases C epsilon and delta will also give you a lipid-induced beta cell dysfunction and apoptosis via the protein kinase C 
delta. Finally, you can get hyperinsulinemia directly because of this protein kinase activation. Okay, So you get how this diacylglycerol I just went through, how it can be a very potent trigger for all the metabolic disorders associated with obesity right? and in various organ systems. So this is, what, this is a take-home message that you really must understand when we get involved in this in some detail. Otherwise, you're not going to get the idea that um, where these diseases can be triggered from. They're triggered from a pathway that is turned on during a stress response because of a buildup of a specific lipid, not one you normally would think of as being that potent, simply diacylglycerol. Okay. Now, heart failure is also linked to this, and we've talked about this in the past, but heart, heart failure is, of course, a very leading cause of morbidity and ultimately mortality worldwide. And yes, HF or heart failure is directly linked to obesity and type 2 diabetes, as we've been saying. He's part of the comorbid diseases with obesity T2D. Now, epidemiological studies show that 50% of patients with heart failure have what's known as a preserved ejection fraction rather than the reduced ejection fraction. We went over this a couple of months ago. And remember that the prevalence of this preserved ejection fraction will increase as the population continues to age and become more obese. All of that will cause a predilection to heart failure, okay? So these are all key features here of uh, diabetes that, that we, have, we have been going around and talking about in some great detail, but I just wanted to make sure that you caught this uh, directly. Now, I want to remind you, get back to this whole thing of ketogenesis in the central nervous system and in other cells. But remember that astrocytes will generate ketone bodies from sphingomyelin degradation. And you know that once those ketone bodies are synthesized, they have to go through utilization. So either from the astrocytes or from the periphery, these ketone bodies will go from the cytosol into the mitochondria. These are freely accessible to the mitochondria. They don't have to go through the carnitine pathway because they're ketone bodies. They're not coethioesters. They will directly within the mitosol be converted via the processes of ketolysis to um, acetoacetyl, back to acetoacetyl-CoA. So they come as acetoacetate, but reacting with succinyl-CoA um, with the succinyl-CoA transferase enzyme, succinyl-CoA and acetoacetate will form succinate in the mitochondria as well as acetoacetyl-CoA. Acetoacetyl-CoA then will go through the final stages of keto, uh, ketolysis to form acetyl-CoA. Acetyl-CoA will go through the TCA cycle and also make condensing with oxaloacetic acid, making citrate. There won't be any blockage of these reactions because beta oxidation will cease. So what you'll get is a buildup of NADH and FADH2, and you'll run all of that reduced nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide and flavonamide dinucleotide 
through the four complexes of the oxidative phosphorylation electron transport system to generate ATP. Right? It's all happening in the mitochondria. So this is just ketone utilization, ketone utilization. Okay. So one of the key enzymes there was the succinyl-CoA 3-oxoacid-CoA transferase, also known as SCOT, right? And again, that will form acetoacetyl-CoA from succinyl-CoA and acetoacetate, right? And that's how you make acetyl-CoA, which then goes into metabolism. Now, there's a lot of other things that goes on in the hepatocyte and also in, uh, in the adipocyte and also in the central nervous system, which can cause a reconfiguring of lipid metabolism, which can lead to further uh, potentiation of this pyrotosis that we're talking about. And remember how that's generated. It's generated by increasing diacylglycerol. Now, why would you get all this lipase activity when at the same time we're talking about ketone utilization? Well, ketone utilization is just one form of a bioenergetic substrate to the CNS. So at the same time that's occurring, all the other signaling in the neuron itself, but also in the glial system that uh, comport the neuron system in the central nervous system and organize its metabolic grid, you're going to get a, a diminishment of any storage triacylglycerol, the synthesis of diacylglycerol, and the activation of protein kinases. These protein kinases then will go on to cause this uh, manifestation of a change in gene expression, which will lead to the production of pro-inflammatory cytokines, but also the production of mycosinoids, which will trigger that subsequently. Okay. So I'll, I'm almost finished. Let me just check here my time. Now we got a little bit more time. Okay, we got almost five minutes, four minutes. All right, I guess I can I can introduce this. There's an essential mitochondrial succinyl-CoA oxoacid transferase. It's absolutely essential for ketone utilization. Now, if that doesn't, if that is not expressed well in the neuron, the ketone bodies that are generated from sphingomyelin degradation uh, during the aging female particularly from an obese state, you're not going to be able to utilize the ketone bodies. That means what will happen is that you'll form a lot of acetyl-CoA, you'll make a lot of NADH, um, but it won't be processed in a way that you'll get that linear flow with incoming nascent acetyl-CoA or from beta-hydroxybutyrate. What that means is that the neuron begins to starve, and that's what triggers the diacylglycerol pathways, lipolysis and then beta oxidation, which can increase the amount of reactive oxygen because of the buildup of partially reduced forms of molecular oxygen, right, in the mitochondria, in the neuron, right? So that's why I brought back in that keto pathway. So you've got this Scott enzyme, right? It converts it acetoacetate to acetyl-CoA. And it's interesting that enzyme isn't everywhere. It is in the central nervous system, but it's not in the hepatocyte. And presumably blocking the, because it would block the use of ketone, in that the fact that it's not there would prevent ketone body utilization in the liver. And you don't want the liver to compete with the central nervous system. 
you understand, or any other organ for that matter. So there's a histone lysine acetylation, and that diminishes the chromatin electrostatic interactions between duplex DNA and the lysine-rich nucleosomes. Of course, that lysine comes from the histones, right? Histones is usually H3, thus remodeling to euchromatin and opening the increased probability of the RNA-dependent RNA polymerase-mediated transcription. So methylation is more complicated, plus there is also lysine ubiquitinylation that occurs. Propanylation, butyrylation, 2-hydroxyisobutyrylation, succinylation because of the buildup of succinic acid, malinylation because of acetylcalcoboxylase activity, glutarylation, hydroxymethylglutarylation, this is from the cholesterol genesis pathway, crotinylation, that's fatty acid synthesis, and of course, beta-hydroxybutyrylation directly from the ketone bodies. All of that will then cause chromatin remodeling, chromatin retailoring. And this is all derived from a lack of the SCA activity, right? A lack of that succinyl-CoA-oxo acid transferase in the central nervous system. And again, once that happens, you can't utilize ketone bodies. That's one flaw, but you're still continuing to get sphingomyelin degradation. And what it triggers then is diacylglycerol-mediated beta-oxidation, which causes pyrotosis, and then massive amounts of central nervous system inflammation. Okay. So all of that from obesity and type 2 diabetes. Hope that was clear. We can recover it when we, you know, I'll throw a slide in in the uh, final lecture. Dr. Dan Guerra, Authentic Biochemistry Studios, 23rd of March, 2022, saying, Bye for now.